This is Block Club Chicago's The Ballot, your podcast headquarters for Chicago's elections. And this episode is another in our series of conversations with mayoral candidates. Longtime political reporter, columnist, and analyst Laura Washington will handle the chat. And the candidate is Chewy Garcia. Representative Garcia lives in a little village and he represents Illinois' fourth congressional district in Washington, D.C. Jesus Garcia is a longtime political veteran who ran for mayor in 2015 and lost in a runoff to Rahm Emanuel. He finally entered the 2023 campaign in November after he was re-elected to Congress. Prior to his 2015 mayoral campaign, Representative Garcia served on the Chicago City Council, the Illinois State Senate, and the Cook County Board of Commissioners. Recently, he was identified as an unnamed member of Congress that was mentioned in federal court records involving the corruption case against former Illinois House Speaker Mike Madigan. Representative Garcia has denied any involvement in this in the alleged pay-to-play scheme involving Commonwealth Edison, and he says he is not under investigation. We're going to talk about that a little, little bit more later, but right now I want to, I'm very pleased to introduce Chewy Garcia. Hello, Representative Garcia. Good afternoon, uh, Laura. Glad to uh, join you and the Block Club uh, tonight, or this uh, beautiful afternoon. As someone who organized a bunch of Block Clubs <laughs> in his prior uh, life and uh, work, it's great to be on the block today. Well, I know you've been, I know you, 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 I'm not surprised you're having trouble keeping the time of day straight because I know you've been really busy today doing press conferences and, and out in the community. And I really appreciate you making the, some, the time for us. And I know your time is. First of all, I just want to do a little bit of personal uh, stuff sure. for viewers who may not know you, know you that well. Uh, could you t- give us a couple things in your personal background that you think uniquely qualify you to be the mayor of this nation's third largest city? Uh, gladly. Uh, first of all, I think it's my Chicago uh, rootedness. Uh, people may not know, but I have been a paralegal with the Legal Assistance Foundation, especially in the area of public interest law, immigration, uh, labor, uh, consumer rights, uh, social security, on and on. I've also worked as a housing counselor with Neighborhood Housing Services, where I rose to be the director of uh, Neighborhood Housing Services in Little Village, uh, per se. And uh, uh, the uh, my history in the nonprofit sector is quite long. One of the most challenging and rewarding jobs I had was executive director of uh, Enlace, it used to be called Little Village Community Development Corporation. Uh, I was the founding executive director. I was there for nine years, and we excelled, uh, especially in uh, developing uh, schools and uh, keeping, um, creating, making schools the center of community um, uh, throughout uh, Little Village, uh, and then it spread to other communities. And of course, I'm very proud of my work. Uh, creating a violence prevention uh, collaborative while at Enlace as well. I think we helped pioneer uh, many of the organizations that today are doing violence prevention and inter- intervention, providing positive alternatives alternatives for young people, as well as uh, giving them career paths and opportunities, and many of them becoming um, uh, you know, street workers, uh, gang intervention workers, uh, et cetera, and uh, mentors and leaders in the community as well. One of the proud achievements, uh, Laura, I have to share this with you, uh, that I have was the fight uh, for the Little Village Longdale High School uh, that uh, took off uh, on, uh, on uh, Mother's Day on, uh, in May of 2001, lasted 19 days, brought the community together like never before, uh, took on... Uh, the then superintendent Paul Vallis and Chicago Public Schools and uh, the mayor, Mayor Daly, and uh, succeeded, uh, not just in getting a, a school with brick and mortar, but most importantly, an institution that's serving uh, you know, young people from uh, Little Village and North Rondale and sending them in unprecedented numbers to colleges and universities. And they're coming back to contribute uh, to the communities that they came from. So uh, they should know a little bit about that. You know, there's all the political stuff. I don't know if you want to get into that. Well, we, I, we covered some of that already in terms of all the elected positions you've held. Yeah. And, you, and you've served in, 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 just in almost every elected body that's in, in the Chicago and the state. So that's a really great, great setup for what I was going to ask next, which is two of the things sure. you brought up where you talked about your anti-violence work. And you also talked about your work with the schools. And 
Anti-violence, obviously crime is a very big issue for us in the city and in this campaign. What would you, you just share the, the basic fundamental tenets of your public safety plan and how does it differ from your opponents? Uh, public safety um, in Chicago is the number one topic on people's minds. Uh, polling has uh, borne that out. Uh, and I think it, uh, it affects everyone in Chicago. I hear people in every community that I'm in uh, that that's the number one uh, concern. Uh, my plan uh, is a plan that recognizes uh, this uh, priority, seeks to address it, uh, calls for a new leadership at the Chicago Police Department, both in the superintendent um, who embraces the importance of uh, community policing, restoring uh, trust uh, with community residents and uh, police officers, uh, embracing implementation of the consent decree, uh, we have lagged in that implementation. I see the consent decree as the roadmap to modernizing the police department and ushering in many uh, things that the department historically and its leadership have resisted. Uh, accountability, transparency, uh, use of technology, uh, uh, deploying uh, officers uh, from these citywide uh, units that tend to wind up uh, going rogue and creating all kinds of problems. That's why uh, cities like uh, Atlanta and Memphis and others have uh, gotten rid of them. Uh, and of course, uh, deploying uh, cops in neighborhoods. Uh, uh, very important to rebuilding uh, trust. Uh, you know, the city's facing a, a huge challenge coming out of the COVID experience uh, and the lockdown uh, that I think has contributed uh, to the wave of violence and crime that we haven't seen in Chicago in a long time. So it's, you know, what's different about my plan and other plans? I would say uh, the, the need for the mayor to be a catalyst uh, in terms of leadership uh, to implement it, uh, fully staffing uh, the mayor's office of public safety. It's pretty much gutted right now. And that's critical of uh, public safety and violence prevention because the violence prevention investment is really key to me. And of course, uh, getting at making uh, uh, investments to get at the root causes of a lot of the violence in our community. Uh, it's clear that the communities that have been most disinvested uh, have uh, the greatest levels of violence and that uh, because of the situation we're in right now, it's spread to uh, other places of the city. Uh, a lot of the violence and the crime is driven by uh, youth uh, who uh, you know, have been on their own for a long time uh, who have uh, resorted to a life, lifestyle of uh, uh, being involved in uh, drug dealing and gangs and uh, other uh, type of activity, and they've taken it to new levels. Uh, I think COVID uh, had lots to do with it, but at right. any rate, uh, my bottom line is that <clears throat> I think we have the capacity to uh, identify uh, these young people at risk of either uh, being shot or being shooters themselves, and uh, pretty much they've gone haywire. And that's why we see crime uh, being such a top issue uh, in every neighborhood across Chicago. Right. Great. Um, so you, met, you mentioned youth and, and some of the challenges they're facing. And obviously COVID is, a, is an issue in, in, in terms of the challenges in, in the schools right now. We've lost so many students from, the, from CPS. We've lost more than 100,000 students over the last couple decades. The CPS is, is running uh, behind in terms of it's finances. There is a projected budget deficit for CPS as much as $600 million by 2026, and more than 100 schools in the city are considered under-enrolled. Uh, what, what would you do to turn the schools around and to address some, some of the inequities in, this, in the public school system? What is your plan there? Yeah, as someone who's, you know, pretty um, involved and immersed in the school system because uh, my three uh, uh, children uh, went to Chicago uh, public high schools, and I currently have uh, six children in Chicago public schools. Grandchildren, uh, you mean? <laughs> I'm trying to be younger. Um, uh, I, uh, you know, I'm a stakeholder, and uh, you know, a grandparent uh, watching um, what's there. Uh, we're facing uh, a new set of problems with the number of. Uh, students that have been lost. I think it's a reflection of uh, the exodus, especially 
in the black community uh, of people leaving Chicago uh, because it's unsafe. Uh, guns are too accessible. Um, jobs are a challenge. The quality of life uh, for a lot of black uh, communities has deteriorated and uh, people have lost hope that Chicago is a good place to stay. So they're leaving. Uh, the schools are a reflection of that. Uh, I'm especially concerned about uh, how many uh, students uh, just fell through the cracks and we haven't identified them and we haven't gotten them back uh, into school. I think we need to redouble our efforts. Issue uh, in you know the coming uh, year plus is going to be uh, what we do with under-enrolled schools, uh, where you have you know 250 or less children. It becomes challenging in terms of what type of a curriculum you can offer, what kind of programming. Uh, it, it's hard to uh, you know have teachers uh, to attract teachers and the type of teachers that. Are needed in those schools as well so it'll are, be a really tough challenge just, just a, are you are you open to closing some of those schools if, if necessary look uh it's going to be uh, a tough uh challenge to to confront but we shouldn't forget that we need to incorporate uh the lessons of the last uh, massive school closings that took place uh under Rahm Emanuel uh when you close a school uh you take a part of the life uh, and, 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 and the soul out of that school, it leaves a great sense of desolation and abandonment in those neighborhoods. I drive through parts of North Lawndale where that happened and you, you see it, you feel it when you drive by uh, the emptiness and the despair, it adds to the despair. So here's where I'm going. I think we're gonna have to have some serious engagement with communities that have those uh, enrollment uh, challenges right now, uh, but it's, it's going to be uh, intentional engagement to have the hard conversations. My sense is that by being honest with people and by exploring options uh, and what needs to happen is how you prevent uh, the type of uh, fallout, uh, additional uh, demoralization of people. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, as part of that conversation, we'll have to talk about um, you know, adapting the uses of those schools because people do have uh, in those neighborhoods have good ideas about what is needed in those areas if a school facility is no longer deemed to be in need uh, of providing those services. What can you do with those buildings so it doesn't become one more blight and one more huge loss for that community? And what one con recent controversy we've seen around uh, one of those closed schools that you referred to is, is what was, what's going on at Wadsworth Elementary in Woodlawn, which, uh, as you know, has been converted into a shelter for migrants who, who've come to sh Chicago. And uh, there was some controversy around how that came about. Um, it, it looks like the, the migrants are, have been moved in. Um, the community has been somewhat involved, but. What, what's your what's your opinion on how that was handled and how would you handle those situations going forward? Uh, it was handled very poorly. Uh, you cannot uh, start to uh, purpose a school that the community wanted repurposed, wanted to uh, a shuttered school uh, to be converted into some sort of a community center, and then uh, just you know on a day announced that it's going to be repurposed. Uh, for something that the community had uh, no input, uh, no say-so about. Uh, that, uh, you know, is counterproductive. It creates uh, bad tensions, and it leads uh, to other fissures as well, uh, where people feel that something they wanted to happen in their community couldn't happen, yet you're showing them that something could happen but it's not for the people who live in that community. Right. Uh, that was a bad approach. The lack of engagement is at the root of it. And uh, you know, it unnecessarily pits people against each other. People say, well, why didn't we make it a homeless shelter for people who are homeless in the community? Why didn't we make it a community center, et cetera? I think those are all legitimate questions. Mm -hmm. uh, so the top-down approach didn't work there and it's creating other fallout as well. Because I think when people you know, get to discuss, should Chicago be a welcoming city? Mm -hmm. uh, I think in the end, for the most part, people think that uh, we should help people who are in desperation. Uh, but at the same time, we have an obligation to help people who've lived in those neighborhoods and who also have needs. 
right? And and there and it created some people believe some tensions, black Latino tensions, because of course it's an African American neighborhood. Uh, many yeah. of the, the folks that are bring, being brought there are, are Latino, and there, there's some so that is an issue. The whole black Latino relationship is something you've worked on for a long time. So, what's your read on? And where we sit with that particular issue, especially around this event, is that hurt? Is that eroded the relationship? What do we need to do to fix that? Well, this uh, this situation uh, certainly calls attention to uh, the need for having, uh, at the very least, an ongoing uh, dialogue uh, to be having these conversations on these issues. And you know, it also gets uh, to the question of uh, what kind of uh, influence, uh, what kind of say-so, what kind of power can the two communities uh, wield together if there's agreement that we have uh, common issues uh, in an agenda? Mm-hmm. You know, we we did some of this in the uh, '80s uh, successfully, especially when Harold Washington was mayor. I like to think that at least legislatively, we did uh, a lot of collaboration uh, in the um, in the legislature in the 90s when I was a member of the Senate. Uh, do you recall, Laura, that uh, I was a chairman of the Black Caucus, the Senate Black Caucus, for like a year and a half? Yeah, um, I people do recall that. Most people don't know that. <laughs> and when I share with, they're like, wow, how did that happen? I told them, look, it was simply about trust. There were two Latino members, one Mexican-American, one Puerto Rican in the Black Caucus because we were banding together because we wanted to advance an agenda. Mm-hmm. And when you build trust, you can do things like that. So, uh, so what, what needs to happen today to, 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 build, to build up that trust? Um, I think uh, community leaders need to be more intentional about gathering, having those uh, conversations, uh, bringing uh, their bases, their members uh, along uh, whether it's black clubs, whether it's uh, churches, whether it's nonprofit organizations, especially those who live in proximity to each other. What am I talking about? Uh, you know, Little Village or, or South Lawndale and North Lawndale mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. On the northwest side, uh, Humble Park and West Humble Park mm-hmm. and Hermosa, where we border on each other, uh, you know, we can't be separated. Uh, by streets or by railroad viaducts. And we need Mm -hmm. this kind of uh, uh, relationship and dialogue. Uh, Dialogue uh, lends itself to empathy and hearing, understanding each other's realities is at the the crux of being able uh, to move forward. Uh, We've not done well in this regard. Mm -hmm. And when you live through uh, crises, as I think was uh, the pandemic, as well as the racial reckoning uh, in the aftermath of Laquan McDonald and the killing of uh, George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, it is especially urgent to resume conversations and figure out uh, how to move forward. One big obstacle in this that you know has frustrated me over many years is that in, in the Latino community, uh, language is a barrier. Mm-hmm. And it's a real barrier for probably the people that need to have those dialogues the most uh, and that is monolingual individuals with monolingual monolingual Spanish with monolingual English. And we've got to figure out how to bridge that divide because the well-being of the city and just the you know greater civility and decency right. uh, and, and our ability to move, you know, move forward as a city uh, really depends on whether or not we do this or not. We've got a lot of work to do. Those of us who care about this, especially. Uh, now, um, you've, we've talked a lot about your experience and in, in, in in your professional experience, and it's, it certainly is broad and deep, but uh, one thing uh, that I don't see in, on your resume is, is, is experience managing large organizations. And LASE is a great organization, has done a lot of important work, but it's not big. And, and this, the city budget is a $16 billion budget. Um, you, you don't bring that kind of experience, so how, we, how can you reassure voters who have the management skills and, 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 and strategies to, to manage a big city like Chicago. Yes, uh, so you may uh, be forgetting that I was deputy commissioner uh, of the water department for a two year period under Herald. I learned uh, quite a bit about the budget. Uh, we were in charge of uh, 
collecting the water fees. Uh, so all the water bills uh, we were responsible for, I got an understanding uh, of one department and a deeper dive uh, into it. Mm -hmm. uh, two, uh, you know, in the nonprofit sector and in the foundation world, uh, larger budgets, but in at the county, uh, you have a pretty large budget as well. And then of course, uh, the mother of all budgets is the federal budget because we not only deal in uh, millions, but it's billions and even trillions, uh, especially with the scope of the uh, magnitude of the um, uh, inflate the uh, infrastructure and jobs act, uh, which is you know landmark legislation, uh, no bigger, it hasn't been bigger since the New Deal, and then of course uh, the uh, Chips and Science Act, another I think transformational opportunity for cities like Chicago, and then the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, better said, investment in climate change and green energy investments. So the past four years in particular because we couldn't do anything in Washington, D.C. socially because of the lockdown. Uh, I studied a whole lot about budgets uh, mm -hmm. and, and how they can be deployed. Uh, a mayor needs to understand that a budget is a moral document of priorities, but you also hire uh, the brightest uh, and the best people to come in and help you manage from your chief of staff to your budget director to your uh, police superintendent and other leaders like that. And I think uh, if, if uh, there's a change in government in Chicago, and if I am the mayor, I think there would be uh, a tremendous interest on the part of uh, very bright people from many walks of life that are today in universities or even the private sector would want to come to Chicago and help us modernize city government. And Lord knows it's needed badly. I think we're seeing a close-up view of the Chicago Police Department and the, bad, and the changes other departments are in need of that as well. Okay, so um, you said you, you've, you've been involved in bringing um, bringing money from co Congress to DC, but one area that uh, where we are, we're kind of weak is support from Springfield. There's a lot of conversation about getting more support, some funding support from Springfield, particularly for education, community development. What is your strategy for securing more support from the Illinois legislature? Well, I'm pleased um, to hear the uh, governor already a uh, signal in uh, his state of the state that he intends to increase funding uh, for education. Uh, it's badly needed. Um, the legislature should uh, redouble its uh, efforts uh, to double the funding formula for schools uh, in, in Illinois, uh, Chicago and other municipalities needed as well. Uh, it's critical to properly resource every school in uh, Chicago, uh, the Chicago system. And uh, it's needed for uh, ensuring that all children have the right resources in their classroom. It's needed to ensure that we pay teachers uh, the salaries that are needed to prevent uh, a further brain drain and a turnover in those schools. If we don't do that, um, it, it's essential uh, that we increase it because uh, Chicago public schools have the added challenge right now of uh, reassuring uh, parents, uh, students, especially high school students, uh, teachers, and others that they will continue uh, to be around and to provide uh, a better quality education than we are seeing now. I'm especially concerned with the impact of COVID and the loss in learning that has occurred and the other uh, social emotional implications that that may not have fully expressed themselves yet. So it's a critical time for us to work together to reassure people that CPS is going to be around and that it will improve. That's why we need added uh, resources from Springfield. My relationships with the speaker, with the Senate president, and with the governor will be a great asset, I believe, to the future of CPS. Right. And so what would be your strategy for you? have those relationships with how will you, how will you deploy those relationships? What's going to be... For in your first 100 days, what are you going to do to, 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 to sort of build those relationships and get real money out of Springfield? Well, remember uh, the uh, inauguration, uh, if, if there's a, a new mayor sworn in, if I am that mayor, it is in May. Uh, by that time, mm -hmm. uh, much of uh, what will happen in Springfield is likely to be decided uh, for the most part. Uh, so my hope is that uh, uh, convey the urgency and start working with legislators. I've spoken to some already about the urgency 
of uh, added funding for Chicago public schools just to make sure that there isn't further slippage and that our enrollment levels don't go down. And then, of course, to begin uh, seeking to restore what was lost during COVID as the experts tell us uh, where the emphasis needs to be so that our young people don't fall behind further. Okay. Uh, now, we, I have a number of, of questions I want to get to from uh, Black Club readers and supporters. And one sure. comes from Rage Inglewood. I'm sure it's an organization you're familiar with based in, down in Inglewood. And, and the organizers there are concerned about the fact that in Greater Inglewood alone, we, there are more than 600 abandoned and vacant residential and commercial properties. And they want to know what would be your plan to, 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 that you would implement in your early days in office to address the hyper vacancies of properties in communities like Inglewood. Yeah, uh, I'm familiar with the uh, work, the great work that uh, Rage uh, does in Inglewood. Uh, uh, I've seen their uh, community plans. They've been a part of a network that I used to participate in working with uh, planners uh, and uh, a community residents to develop their own plans. They represent self-determination and a vision that they develop uh, from folks in the neighborhood. Uh, to address the uh, vacancy rates of uh, residences and um, business, uh, you know, small businesses in Englewood, uh, I recognize the pressures that uh, these uh, owners of property are in. Uh, that was part of my motivation in coming forth with this modest but important property tax relief plan. Um, Englewood is one of those neighborhoods where uh, there's been an increase in the number of delinquent um, property uh, taxes uh, where people are having a hard time paying. Uh, mm -hmm. Toward that end, uh, our plan deals with providing them a modest, but it could be a difference-making amount, relief of $250, uh, because they didn't see their property taxes increase yet. Uh, a lot of people are having uh, trouble even making their current property tax payments, uh, even though they didn't experience uh, an increase. But in places like Inwood, Englewood as well, I would utilize uh, Infrastructure and Jobs Act funding uh, to help homeowners keep those buildings, to uh, help locally based uh, organizations and developers acquire buildings that are already vacant uh, and that can be uh, renovated as well. I would facilitate tax increment financing for those purposes. I think those are some of the best uses of TIF dollars, as well as uh, loans and grants to those communities. Uh, we cannot afford to have more population loss, more loss of housing in those areas. As an urban planner, as somebody who comes out of the community development field, working with groups like RAGE is uh, a top priority because they have a, the best understanding of what's needed in those communities. So I certainly would see myself as an ally and seeking to move those resources through the Department of uh, Housing, the Department of Planning, and uh, other uh, related departments uh, to stem the, uh, the, the the growth of any additional uh, blight in those communities. Okay, thank you. And, and I also I want I, I want to add one more okay. thing, uh, Laura. The station at 63rd and Racine, mm -hmm. uh, Go Green on Racine, is a project that I want to see come to fruition. It's got its act together. It is holistic. It includes, you know, the re re reopening that station, a shuttered station. It includes uh, residential, it includes retail and commercial, and it includes the repurposing of a local public school. It's a wonderful plan that needs to come to fruition and it needs to come to fruition soon. Uh, even though it's out of my district, I've been mm -hmm. supportive as a member of the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, urging the CTA to do it. And of course, urging City Hall to do as well. It is not part of Invest Out West but I think it should be. What about Invest Southwest? Uh, the, the mayor has faced a lot of criticisms. Uh, many people say that, uh, that much of what she claims she is doing with that initiative is, is, is work or projects that were inherited from the previous administration and that some of, it, some of them haven't gotten off the ground yet. There have been people in the community who have felt that they have not been uh, consulted and they want to know, and that's another one of the questions from Black Club, they want to know what you will do to make sure is, is that we, will you continue to bring that, that initiative forward as mayor? And what will you do to in, in, engage the community and make sure that they have a say in what, in what develops in, this, in that project? 
the most uh, successful uh, projects uh, in Chicago are going to be those that really engage community, that emanate from the community, uh, and that have community support. Uh, I certainly want to see Go Green on Racine uh, be one of those pilot projects because I think it has a lot uh, to, to, to tout and to share uh, with uh, the city. Uh, so uh, engagement, uh, I, I agree that Invest Out West uh, gets the geography right. Those are the neighborhoods that need to be invested in. But you've got to engage people and you can't simply take some retail plans and you know plot them on a street without connecting them to community, without connecting them to a local school, without connecting them um, to a clinic in the community. There's got to be integration of that plan to be more holistic. And uh, it also has to include ensuring that there is good public transportation to those places to be able to you know, bring uh, shoppers and users and other people to create a real sense of community uh, building block that will catch on and cause other good development to happen, uh, whether it's housing uh, or uh, healthcare uh, or uh, grocery uh, shopping uh, in a particular part of a neighborhood. Okay. But you're committed. You, you you said you agree with it. It's the right geography. You want to be more community. You want to make sure it's more engaged in the community. But you would continue that kind of initiative is is there. Yes, and and holistic. Mm -hmm. uh, that means uh, you know make it more comprehensive development. Mm -hmm. Don't don't just you know plot down a strip mall somewhere. Be more thoughtful and inclusive of other things that are needed in that community as well. And the neighborhood folks will tell you. Uh, and, and and have a pretty certain understanding of what will work and what won't. Mm -hmm. Another question uh, that about, this relates to something the Black Club has covered quite a bit is, is uh, bicycling accidents. There's been, as you know, a series of tragic incidents in recent years involving bicyclists with cars blocking bike lanes or hitting cyclists in the roadway. What is your plan for improving bicycle safety and and how would you go about doing that? And what specifically would you do to make the roadways safer, safer for cyclists and pedestrians? Uh, I have uh, signed on to the uh, Safe Streets uh, proposal, um, which means that uh, we will develop and uh, fully uh, uh, make bike and scooter and walking uh, uh, modes of transportation uh, more accessible to people all over uh, Chicagoland. Uh, right now, there's, I think, a greater uh, emphasis on uh, doing it on the north side. It needs to be holistic. We need to see more of that on the west side and the south side as well. Uh, some important steps have been taken, but we've got to have you know protected uh, bike lanes everywhere. And we've got to educate the public about it as well. I know that uh, I've had conversations with people. At times, I had that sort of a reaction myself. Uh, why are they putting bike lanes in here? You know, we used to have two or three lanes to drive our cars uh, through and get to places faster. Uh, but really, the important thing here is uh, safety and uh, ending our uh, dependence on cars. It's about protecting the environment. It's about making neighborhoods uh, safer. And yes, it's also about health and getting people to uh, ride bikes, making bikes uh, a you know, more important and significant mode of transport in uh, Chicago and making crosswalks safer as well uh, mm -hmm. for pedestrians uh, or people uh, with disabilities, uh, people who are wheelchair bound, et cetera. So I, I support uh, that proposal, and uh, we'll continue to move forward with its implementation throughout Chicago. Okay. Uh, I want to uh, uh, talk to you about a couple of the controversies that have come up in your campaign. Uh, just this week, uh, your congressional campaign announced that it will cut a check to repay $2,900 to the clients of a, a cryptocurrency exchange that was run by Sam Bankman-Fried, which, which was money that, uh, that he had contributed to your reelection campaign. Uh, why did you return that money and what is the nature of your relationship with Sam Bankman fried and why did Sam Bankman fried give you that money in the first place? Uh, 
first of all, no relationship with uh, Mr. Bankman Freed. Um, he is a crypto entrepreneur uh, who took uh, a lot of money from investors all over the country and did whatever we find out uh, he did. Uh, he put them at great risk. Uh, we discovered that we had received a $2,900 contribution uh, from him. Uh, when we learned that, we gave $2,900 to uh, a charity here uh, in Chicago. Uh, over the past three years, as a member of the Financial Services Committee, I've been a critic of uh, cryptocurrencies. We have warned that they are a great risk to the financial system. We have sought to regulate them. I have worked with Senator Elizabeth Warren on this issue, with Ayanna Presley from Massachusetts in the House of Representatives as well, mm -hmm. another member of the Financial Services Committee. And we've been warning that uh, these crypto companies uh, are jeopardizing our system and calling for greater regulation. Well, that is why, the so, Sorry, so why didn't you take the, the contribution to begin with if you had concerns about these kinds of activities? I didn't know I had received the contribution until it was flagged. Remember that in my congressional campaign committees, I've probably received over, I don't know, $2 million over the past uh, uh, year. Uh, $2,900 doesn't stand out as a big contribution until it was brought to our attention. And then of course we sought to uh, give it to a worthy cause. Uh, if it, you know, we will comply with whatever request is made to make investors in FTX whole. And uh, do I recall, I mean, you, you, you have, you've never had a conversation with Stan Bangman free, but that recall hmm. that you have spoken to, was it his brother or someone else in his, his operation? Brother, I had a conversation with his brother who was involved in another cause having to do with uh, pandemic preparedness. And that was uh, in the, well, during the pandemic uh, months or, or, or years. And I had been quite outspoken on pandemic issues uh, as they affect uh, people of color here in the country and also sought to ensure that the U.S. through uh, its international uh, uh, monetary systems and financial systems would provide relief uh, for people in other countries who are suffering from COVID, especially less developed countries. Okay. Um, now, I also want to come back to something I referenced in earlier, and that was um, your relationship with, with uh, former House, Illinois House Speaker Mike Madigan. Um, you endorsed Mike Madigan um, back in 2016 when he was running for re-election as House Speaker, and there's been a lot of reporting on this. Uh, I just want to tell you, just read what what political the political website has reported, and please clarify if this is not correct. But I also just like to get your response. Uh, political says that you, you essentially made a deal with uh, with Mike Madigan. Uh, you, you quote Garcia Garcia led Garcia uh, made a deal with Mike Madigan so that Madigan would support his allies and former staffers in their bids for public office. In 2018, after accusations of sexual harassment surrounded Madigan's operation, Garcia continued to stick by his ally. ally. His loyalty was rewarded later that year with a $5,000 donation from the state Democratic Party, which Madigan controlled. And in 2020, when Madigan faced a leadership challenge after being identified as public official A in the Commonwealth Edison federal investigation, Garcia stayed quiet. Is that is that the, the reality? And and you did have a relationship. You worked with Mike Madigan over the years. Why did you continue to do that despite those concerns? Look, uh, first of all, <clears throat> the 2016 endorsement for his reelection for state rep uh, was because he was facing a shadow candidate supported by Bruce Rauner and Republicans. Uh, the uh, main, a group of labor leaders asked me to consider endorsing him because Mike Madigan was at the forefront of fighting Bruce Rauner's attempt to make Illinois a right to work state, to do away with other worker protections and had been uh, very supportive of increasing uh, the minimum wage and other worker protections in Illinois. Uh, they approached me about supporting him during this time to prevent Bruce Rauner for, uh, from having uh, more success in his 
efforts to do away with workers' rights. I obliged and endorsed him uh, for re-election, and he got re-elected. Mm -hmm. uh, with respect to the other uh, speculation, it is uh, uh, sheer speculation, people wanting to make more of it than was there. Uh, I've been fighting the machine, Laura, uh, longer than just about anyone else in elective office today. Uh, my fight has been a long one. It's been uh, treacherous at times. Uh, I once lost my Senate seat because of my fight for certain principles when all the machine organizations ganged up on me in 1998. Uh, that's the toll that it's taken. I have uh, the scars and the fights, uh, you know, the, the, the scars that I've earned over that period of time where we were the only remaining organization that did not fold to the machine forces in Chicago. Mm -hmm. That was at the height of the, the power of uh, Richard M. Uh, Daly. Uh, and we continued our fight. Uh, since those times, we've seen the fall of just about every machine organization in Chicago. The landscape in terms right. of machine politics has changed dramatically. If we had not held the line, we would not be in this position, especially to see a resurgence of progressive politics with the election of young people, next generation leaders to the city council, mm -hmm. to the state legislature, to the county board, even to Congress. So that is what our principal fight has produced. But you have worked with that Madigan, I mean, in terms of as I understand it, there were there are candidates you want to see get elected, and you needed Madigan's support to to make that happen. And and so you did. I mean, what I've heard you say is that you felt that this this is a pragmatic choice to get those progressive candidates elected. All the decisions that we have made uh, in the past ten years, in particular, came from a position of strength, from a position of good ethics and from wielding our newfound progressive power. Uh, that is what's happened and that's how we um, have uh, uh, made the Southwest side one of the most progressive parts of politics. And in this last round of elections last year, we helped liberate the North side and elect a bunch of progressives as well. <laughs> liberate the north side the north side is now for huh? <laughs> well the north side you know was uh, ahead of us for many years mm -hmm. uh, uh in terms of progressivism and uh, the southwest side uh has been fighting for uh the last 10 years uh, mm -hmm. in particular and uh we have made some significant uh breakthroughs uh, and gains and uh i think because of that example uh, the north side has uh, rejoined uh, their status as one of the leading progressive bastions in progressive politics today. But do not forget, Laura, and to all the listeners here, I've been a progressive when it was hard to be a progressive. I've been a progressive before it got popular and easy to be a progressive. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and that's obviously something you're, you're proud of. Yes. So uh, I have a couple more questions. I know we're, 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 your time is limited, but I want to get to just a couple more questions, to, particularly sure. from the audience. Uh, this one uh, comes, this one says, uh, would you, as mayor, would you broaden the city's sales tax to include professional services to match the growing shift to a service-oriented economy? There are a lot of uh, measures that uh, we need to consider uh, to modernize uh, our economy and uh, to move away from uh, regressive uh, taxation like red light cameras, uh, fees and fines and uh, things of that nature. Uh, at this juncture, I'm not uh, yet convinced that uh, we can do that. Uh, our primary economic goal is to get the engines of Chicago's economy to turn again. Uh, the downtown area needs to be producing uh, at its height to be able to generate uh, resources and uh, income that can be invested in the neighborhoods. Remember, we are in a recovery phase coming out of the pandemic. I say that knocking on wood. Uh, 
Uh, and of course, uh, having to rebuild Chicago to get it chugging again, especially after uh, the civil unrest experience uh, in the last couple of years, uh, that is the number one priority. I will be consulting uh, closely with uh, fiscal experts and uh, those who are looking at the growth of the economy to see what additional steps we need to take in the future to make Chicago more sustainable and to uh, fortify its tax base. Okay, another question from a reader. Uh, how will you address the quality, the quality inequities of programming in the Chicago park system? And how will you, you leverage the park system to engage more children and to be genuine resources for the communities they are located in? That's an excellent question. Uh, it's another uh, front uh, full of challenge. Uh, the Park District uh, should be a, an organization, um, an institution that is uh, easily accessible uh, to people across Chicagoland, youth and seniors and uh, parents as well. Um, it hasn't been adequately uh, resourced. Uh, there are a lot of uh, fees for programs and services within the park district. We've got to figure out new revenue sources to make the uh, system and the services uh, more uh, accessible and uh, affordable uh, for everyone in Chicago. Uh, if uh, children, for example, if you don't have a place to go to after school hours that is affordable and easy to access, uh, they will get involved in other uh, activities. Uh, we've underfunded the Chicago Park District. I want to work with the legislature to figure out what investments can be made with the federal government as well. I'm also concerned, uh, Laura, about uh, the Bears' uh, likely leave departure from Soldier Field because it will impact our revenues, not just for Soldier Field and its maintenance in the future, but also revenues for the Chicago Park District and programs in neighborhoods, especially uh, the needier neighborhoods across Chicagoland, the lower income neighborhoods uh, in different parts of the city. Uh, so for one, I am uh, calling on the state legislature uh, to take action because the Bears are going to need their help, the, the legislature's help in uh, Springfield. Mm -hmm. They should uh, you know, make sure that there is restitution provided uh, to Chicagoans and certainly to the park district as that revenue source is lost. Uh, you know, who's going to pay for the maintenance of uh, Soldier Field if it isn't used by the bears? And if there's less usage of it, which is likely to be the case for quite some time. Uh, so the legislature has, in my opinion, that responsibility as well as additional, uh, making sure that we're made whole or at least partially whole for other revenues that we that will be lost that will impact more people in Chicago. So you're so you're going to urge legislature to in in lieu of well not in lieu of but if they given that they need support and help to be able to move to Arlington Heights, they can go but they need to be able to support leave some some support and some and some resources behind uh, before yes. in terms of improving. And if you are you working. Are you talking to anyone in the legislature about that right now? Have you, have you approached I, I've, I've raised it with a couple of legislative leaders so far. Okay. We'll keep, keep us posted on that one. Uh, so I just want a couple more quick things. Uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, your event this today. You had an event um, where you discussed some concerns you had about this new story that just came out the last few days about Paul Vallis and his residency issue. What did you, what did you have to say earlier today about that? I think all of us were uh, kind of shocked uh, to hear because uh, we hadn't paid much attention to this. You assume that anyone running for mayor lives in Chicago and is rooted in Chicago and is a stakeholder in Chicago and not just a smooth uh, talker and a questionable uh, past uh, executive, especially as you know, he, uh, the Paul Ballas extols uh, his uh, skills uh, in education and as a manager. Uh, I was shocked that he sought and got a uh, home uh, homestead exemption uh, uh, from the Cook County uh, assessor uh, for a home in Palos Park where he admitted his wife lives uh, mm -hmm. apparently because she's caring for someone. That doesn't quite pass the smell test. And, mm -hmm. you know, Chicagoans are skeptical about a lot of things. 
So it raises one more question about uh, Paul Vallis and his integrity. Uh, does he live in Chicago? And it certainly appears that he doesn't. Uh, he rented. Well, well, he says he does. He says he lives in. He has an apartment in Bridgeport. I'm sure that he uh, is paying rent for uh, a place that he uh, rented in um, Bridgeport. Uh, have folks around there seen him? And does he go to any grocery stores? Does he hang out uh, at a at a bar or at a coffee shop? I think that's the question. But it's one more question that surfaces since the video was released of him, first of all, saying that he identifies more as a Republican, that he is fundamentally opposed uh, to abortion. And uh, I think it'll bring more scrutiny, hopefully it will, uh, by the media about what his record has been as a school's leader uh, in Philadelphia and in New Orleans and in uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut. He seems to have a thing for Bridgeport, Connecticut, but I understand a judge uh, fired him uh, there, and we need to figure out how he left uh, those uh, school systems, or at least the public needs to find out uh, whether he was successful or not, whether there's a legacy of success there, or whether there's a trail of failure and once again, he ran the clock out. Remember, our fight in Little Village with Paul Vallis was around how he diverted money from our school and gave it to other schools. And we like to think that we had something to do with his resignation as the uh, school's chief, where he went on uh, to Philly. Mm -hmm. We got our school, but it was uh, Superintendent or CEO Arnie Duncan that negotiated it and made it happen. And that's why he was invited uh, to the Little Village Lawndale High School when uh, its grand opening mm -hmm. occurred in 2005. It was not Paul Vallis. Well, you, it sounds like you have a lot of questions about uh, Paul Vallis, and I'm sure we're going to be hearing more about this in the days to come. It might have something to do with the fact that the polls show that Paul Vallis is either leading or very close to the top in terms of uh, the support he's getting in the campaign. That might have something to do with why he's getting he's getting piled on. That's at least what he says to the Sun-Times, but yeah, that's a good line. He, like I said, he's a smooth talker. Smooth talker. You just say that. All right. You have been a great talker, and I really appreciate this. <laughs> but I have one last important question. It's, it's for anybody that watches and reads Block Club or anybody that knows Chicago. We're in the middle of winter. Uh, we're going to probably get to be, we've been lucky so far. We're probably going to be getting a little bit more snow. And as you know, there's a time-honored tradition in Chicago called dibs. Uh, are you pro-dibs or anti-dibs? You know, sometimes I want to be against it, but man, if you're from Chi-Town, it's really hard to go against the grain. Uh -huh. uh, some people feel like they earn it, and uh, I do not park when people have dibs. Uh, you know, I, I, I clean out my space, and uh, I'm okay with somebody taking it, but I still give them a hard look when, they, when I see them parking <laughs> in, that, in that spot that I shovel. Is, is it, do you see that? Is it happening a lot in Little Village? Is Little Village a, a headquarters for dibs? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> you know, I want to do away with it, but uh, it's tough. And, you know, when I was alderman, I would uh, ask our ward uh, superintendent if he could remove all the dibs. And sometimes he would. And sometimes he said, I tried. <laughs> but there's a lot of resistance there. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a tough one. It's a Chicago thing. Please subscribe to The Ballot, a Block Club Chicago podcast, and we'll drop another pod on you soon.